Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hi, this is Dan Miller. Welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Well, this is the time each week when we just set aside 48 minutes to examine the value of our work. Now, we know that work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck, but you know it's a whole lot more than that, isn't it? It's an opportunity to live out our calling and to create the legacy we want to leave behind. We're talking about work that is fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. That's what we're going to be covering. You know, we got a lot of reader input today, as usual. Some people are commenting on the power of reading. Commenting on his work as a curse. I've talked about that a couple times, and it always raises a lot of interesting philosophical and theological questions for people. Had some good comments on that that I want to share with you. Somebody wants to know, can I make money as a franchise owner? A lady wants to know, well, I always struggle because I'm black. Interesting question we'll get to. Somebody else says, thanks, Dan, I've broken through the negative crust. So just a great variety of questions. We'll get right into those here in just a second. I want to remind you of a couple of upcoming events. Now, this is in November when I'm recording this. So we don't have any live events scheduled at the sanctuary for the remainder of this year. This is a time when Joanna and I kind of sit back, relax a little, spend time with friends and family, and don't have as many outside events planned. But we're gearing up for January, and obviously a lot of you are as well taken uh, good advice to start planning what you want next year to look like. So in January, we've got a couple live events, kick right off. The two most popular are Coaching with Excellence, where if you want to be a coach, how can you turn that into a viable business and a real income stream? And then also our Right to the Bank events. Um, Those are coming up. So check the timelines on those just Go to live events under .com or .net, and you'll see the dates for those. Also, don't forget the big cruise we got coming up in February, right over Valentine's Day. Uh, just added another speaker to the lineup. Uh, Dr. David Foster is going to be joining us. He and his wife have done a lot of work when, that has to do with relationships and marriage, and he's a real inspirational speaker. You'll enjoy him a lot. So. Uh, Check out the details for the No More Monday cruise. Give our buddy Pierce Mars a call. He'll fill you in on the details and get you lined up to join us for that great event. Great way to combine learning and relaxing. I don't know of a better way to do it than on a cruise. If you got a question, you can shoot that in to askdan at 48days.com or fill out the little form that we've got on the podcast link at 48days.com. Got a quotation for you we're going to start off with today. John Wooden says, said, obviously he's not around anymore, but John Wooden, a great basketball coach and inspirational leader himself, says, I'm not what I can be. I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Great quote. Now, Amy commented on the fact that I talk so much about the power of reading, being able to shape a person's life. She sent in a quote from an article that I did go and read. Thanks, Amy, for that article. And it says, those who produce the information lead, those who receive and manage that information serve, and those who ignore the information depend. That's a pretty frightening thought. If you aren't 
creating information or at least receiving reading information in some way, you're going to be pretty dependent on others. I mean, there's a lot of uh, similar kind of thoughts out there. I read in a book this week that those who not who will not manage themselves or master themselves are doomed. They're condemned to become under the mastery of others. So you can choose. Well, as for reading, you know, there are a lot of great quotations that I've put together over the years. Um, Mark Twain says, a man who doesn't read good books has no advantage over the man who can't read them. Charles Spurgeon, the great evangelist pastor, says, the man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brain of his own. Now, that's pretty strong for a pastor. But uh, it it amazes me sometimes when I talk to people who want to write a book and I say, well, tell me the titles of the five last books you've read this year. It's like, well, gee, duh, no, I haven't had time to read any books myself. I just want to write one. And I know right then it's never going to happen. Great writers are always great readers. You can't separate the two. B.C. Forbes says, we sometimes receive letters from businessmen who say they are too busy to read. The man who is too busy to read is never likely to lead. So keep that in mind. Incidentally, just uh, pull in the whatever it's worth category, I just put number book number 58 on my list for the books that I've read this year. But there's so many good books out there. I can't keep up with the books that I do want to read. And so spend a lot of time doing that. And thus, you know, get information about new things that are happening. I mean, there are a lot of success principles that are timeless. I mean, you can read a book that's 200 years old, and I read a lot of those as well. But then there's a lot of new stuff coming along where I really do want to take advantage of it. And I share those titles here freely. Well, this comes from, well, this is, this is again, a reader comment. This comes from A.J. Golden, who is a pastor in California, and he's commenting on the idea of work being a curse. And he, that's a pet peeve of his as well. And he says, there's an important piece of information that I'm leaving out. And I'm delighted for him to lay it out as he has. In essence, it's this. Yes, in Genesis, God cursed the ground after Adam's disobedience in the garden and so on and so forth. But what he says, what a lot of people fail to remember or perhaps don't know is that God wiped away that curse after the flood. In Genesis 8, 21, 22, God gives Noah and the rest of mankind this promise. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, so on and so forth. So A.J. points out that, yes, there was a curse, but it only lasted from Adam to Noah. Now, we have no no idea how many years that was, and it doesn't matter. But the important point is, after the flood, the earth was restored again to its perfect condition as it was originally in the Garden of Eden. And it was not cursed at that point. That's a great bit of wisdom there, AJ. Thanks for passing that along. And I hope that'll take the uh, burden off a lot of people who seem to still pull that one section out of Genesis where it implies that uh, because of man's sin, God is always going to make work a pain in the butt. Well, not really. Well, last week I talked about the sweatier brow. The thing that produces sweatier brow is when you're anxious or worried or frustrated or discouraged. And if you're in a work that is an authentic fit for how you're gifted and created, that's not going to be the case anyway. Well, let me move on. 
here this happens to be another AJ, not the same one, but AJ says, unfortunately, when he was talking about love your work, he said, unfortunately, I don't love mine. I've been in sales for 16 years, particularly medical sales over the last five years. As the time has passed, the culture, the process, and the grind have eaten away at my joy through the years. So AJ asks, can one make a living as a franchise owner? A fire, firehouse sub, subway, et cetera, thank you. Sure, absolutely. Now, what we have to kind of keep in mind here, though, is when you are frustrated in your work, it doesn't mean that the work is bad or the company's bad. It means that it's not a proper fit for you. There may be somebody working right next to you who absolutely loves what you're doing. I was on a, a radio show not too long ago and had a caller who is who works for the utility company in Chicago. And he was describing how in the winter he has the pleasure of going to people's homes day after day after day where their pipes have frozen. And then he unfreezes their pipes and gets them up and running again. And what satisfaction he gets from that. And I'm thinking while he's talking, you got to be kidding me. I would die before I'd try to do that kind of work. I hate the cold, being outside, working on frozen pipes. But to him, it was a real opportunity for ministry and to bless the people that he came in contact with. So be careful about thinking that there are certain kinds of work that are really honorable or godly and others aren't. I mean, there's not that kind of distinction. A.W. Tozer, another great theologian, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says, It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. So if you want to be a window washer or a street sweeper, then do it with excellence. Be the absolute best that you can be in doing that. Same way, if you want to be a heart surgeon, or you want to be a chiropractor, or you want to be a a mom or a daddy, or whatever it happens to be, or an accountant, or an electrician, or a pastor, teacher, evangelist, I mean, those are all reasonable opportunities for doing work that matters. Now, when it comes back to AJ's question here, can one make a living as a franchise owner? Sure, you can. But now keep in mind what the franchise model is. Franchise is a work model that is in between being an employee and being a true entrepreneur. Now, again, I'm going to generalize here just to make a case, but you have to realize franchise, you know, franchise, franchisors, let's just start with that. The, the people who have the company, the franchisor, they're not really looking for entrepreneurs. They don't want somebody to come in and then decide, gee, instead of donuts at eight o'clock in the morning, we ought to be serving biscuits and they're going to change things up. No. A franchise, because of the way it's structured, implies that there's a prototype that's been proven. This is a business model that works if you do it in this way. So if you go into McDonald's in Paducah, Kentucky, or you go into one in Seattle, you know those items are going to be exactly the same. And it's not unlikely that the store layout is going to be exactly the same. So there's consistency there. So they want people who are able to see this is how it's been done. This is how it's been successful. If you do it in exactly this way, you're going to be successful. So by nature of an entrepreneur, somebody who wants to break the mold, do things differently, that's going to be pretty hard. Now, a lot of people get trapped in that because they thought they were just um, you know, going out on their own, and then in getting a franchise, they realized they, in some ways, just bought a job for themselves. Again, not right or wrong, good or bad, but that's just the way that it is. 
I mean, the motto, the creed of a franchise is you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. But that not by yourself sometimes becomes a point of irritation as well. There's almost a natural antagonism between the franchisee and the franchisor, especially after you get up and running. I mean, if you're up and running successfully for four years and then all of a sudden you realize you're paying 10% of all your gross profits back to the franchisor, a lot of franchisees have scratched their head and said, wow, how can I get out of this arrangement? Because I know how to do this on my own, but that's just part of the agreement of, of having a franchise. And obviously, if you want to have something like a Subway or Wendy's or Burger King or McDonald's, uh, you, you better be prepared to follow their guidelines. Now, is it going to knock it out of the park financially for you? Probably not. It's not as open-ended as sometimes people think. If you have a Subway franchise, certainly a very successful franchise name, hottest selling franchise out there for several years running now, but you're going to put in 50, 60 hours and you're going to likely make 50 or $60,000 a year. Now, if that's fine for working that many hours, I mean, that that's fine with me if you want to do that. But uh, somebody like that is not going to make a million dollars unless they start having multiple franchises. I mean, I had a friend one time who had 21 Papa John's franchises, and yeah, he made a lot of money. I had a friend actually who had 133 Nutrisystem franchises years ago when the weight loss craze was really big, and he made millions in that because he had so many of them, but any one of those alone would not have been a big cash cow for him. So just be realistic about what you're going into, but yes, you can make money as a franchise owner. Mike says, Dan, I heard on a previous podcast that you're coming out with a military edition of 48 Days. Is this in the near future? I've got 20 years in the United States military. I'm looking forward to retiring and starting my new career path. I've read 48 Days, but I'm interested in how you will tweak your material. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, tough issue for me right now. Yes, I do have a contract from one of my publishers for 48 days military edition. And to be honest, I never signed the contract because I, I knew I had some reservations about it. it. I know it needs to be done. There's lots of material out there, but it's a very challenging topic. Now we hear horrendous stories about people coming out of the military and having a really tough time integrating back into civilian work. There's no secret about that. I mean, the suicide rate of people both in active military service and those who are veterans is horrendous. But there are a whole lot of factors that are kind of thrown up in the air here together that are pretty dicey to sort out. If it's just a matter of knowing how to do a proper job search, how to position yourself, I mean, we can do that. But it's not that easy. There are a whole lot of subtle psychological, emotional factors that come into play. Let me just throw a couple out here, and I almost hesitate to, but this is what makes writing a book so difficult. There are a lot of people who have had challenges in finding work. Okay, let's just start with that. We know that. That's no secret. Unemployment is high. So what do you do if you've tried to, if you spent a year and were unable to find a job? Haven't really been able to identify marketable skills, and it's just really been a challenge. Then you go into the military. Well, you get a big bonus for going in, a signing bonus. You go into the military, you're in for a couple years, and you think, wow, this, this works okay. Then you come out. Then you're the same person that you were. 
I mean, I mean, we have to be realistic about this. I mean, being in the military is not a magic pill. You come out, you're going to confront the same workplace that you had previously. You still are going to have a difficult time identifying what your skills are probably. But now, instead of just being unemployed and recognizing the economy is a little slow, there also tends to be that sense of entitlement, that sense that somebody owes me something because I served my country for a couple of years. Now, again, this is a challenging issue, but because of those kind of factors in this, it's been difficult to write a book where there's not some offense taken on one side or the other. So I'm still working on it, working with a great co-writer on it who has a military background, and uh, we'll, we'll pull it together. But it's been a lot of start-stop because it seems like no matter how we write it, what position we take, there's going to be a fence taken from somebody. Still working on it. I don't have a deadline on that, frankly. And if it never gets done, it just won't get done. Okay. Dear Dan, I would like to put together a group of individuals for a weekly meeting to walk through developing creative income. Do you sell the 48 days to creative income in a three ring binder workbook format that I could use as a roadmap for weekly sessions? During the week, group members work through the exercises in a workbook, then meet weekly for discussion. We would encourage, collaborate, and celebrate each other's progress toward achieving our unique goals. Boy, that, I mean, that, golly, Amy, Amy, you've really described this well. I mean, that sounds like a group anybody would want to be in. A group where you would encourage, collaborate, celebrate each other's progress toward achieving our unique goals. Uh, Amy continues, I think the creative income material has been rebranded with another name, and I'm not certain which product would be most conducive to the meeting format I have in mind. I'm aware of your 48 days seminar product. My impression is that it's centered more around finding a job. I don't want to find a job with an employer. I want to break out of the model of trading time for money and jump in the driver's seat of my life. Now, Amy, you're absolutely right. That material has been rebranded. That material that I sold years ago as 48 Days to Creative Income has now revolved into what is now 48, or No More Mondays, No More Mondays. The working title for that, when I did a trade book from what was originally 48 Days to Creative Income, the working title was Revolutionaries at Work. I mean, I love the idea of revolving, meaning coming back around to something positive. Also, the idea that these are people that see things differently. They want to do things differently. So they have creative, innovative, ingenious suggestions at work, thus revolutionaries. However, after having written the book in its entirety and doing some little focus groups, we discovered that title created, that conjured up some really negative images. When people did not know what was in the book, the title alone, Revolutionaries at Work, brought to mind you know, somebody going postal you know, somebody doing damage at work, somebody being a terrorist. So we knew we had to change the title and thus no more Mondays. And now in the new version, it's no more dreaded Mondays. Now I I do have, I've got parts of the workbook put together for that. What you're talking about would be to just use the no more Mondays. You can use just no more Mondays, go through that. There are questions at the end of the chapters. You can use that in and of itself Uh, to add to that. 
You can download the free 48 low-cost business ideas. That will be part of the workbook that goes with No More Mondays. You can download that for free. And we've got other content that's being put together daily that ultimately will be a workbook. Haven't had a real big push to do that, but we do get a lot of requests for that because a lot of people going through the 48 days to the work you love do get to the point where they recognize I don't want to just get a job. I don't want to put myself in a vulnerable position again. I want to do something where I do put myself in a driver's seat of my life, as Amy's stating here. So yes, that is in the work. But right now you can use No More Mondays. Now this next one comes from Becky. It's a little lengthy, but it's, it's, golly, it's really worth reading. I'm just going to read it quickly. My name is Becky. I'm 28 years old, an airplane mechanic and single. Now, there's a whole lot of things thrown in here, but this is a great story, and Becky's in a really wonderful position. She says, I read 48 Days over a year ago. I've been listening to your podcast ever since. I'm in a really great place now, in part because of the principles I learned from you. I grew up on a farm and was around tools, mechanics a lot. I wanted to pursue mission mechanics, so I went to Laterno University in Texas and earned a degree in aeronautical science. I got a job that I viewed as a stepping stone. I'm going to shorten this a little bit because uh, she goes through, she's got a great job. She's been over like 150 other pilots. So she's had a lot of responsibility and has really moved up in her career. Uh, I handled all the tech support, any questions from mechanics as well. Then last March, I received an email from my alma mater that they had a teaching position open and wanted to talk to me. It was a position teaching aircraft systems, though honestly, I thought it was a joke. They called me at 6 a.m. the next day and asked if I could get the application in that day. The application asked questions like describe your classroom skills, describe your teaching experience, Uh, Because I had listened to you, I immediately thought transferable skills, and I went on and on about how, though I don't have teaching experience in the classroom, I do teach customers mechanics about their aircraft every day through customer support or something to that effect. Thanks, Dan. I got the position after 12 hours of interviews. Here's my question. I love my new career. I really feel this is where God has been leading me. I love collecting information, organizing it, and relating it to the students. I love working for a Christian school that values excellence. To keep my job, however, I need to start my master's degree, estimated to cost around $18,000, which will be paid for if I stay for two years after I finish. I would love to plan the next few years out, but one of my goals is to have a family. How do I factor that in? I would like to stay home with my kids, so I wonder if I'll be stuck with this debt if I can't finish what is essentially a five-year commitment, three years for the master's, two years for reimbursement. My thought right now is to save money along the way so that I'm not ever stuck and could get out whenever I needed to. I also realize marriage is very hypothetical. I was going to say hypocritical. That's not what I meant at all. She says marriage is hypothetical. I would love to hear your thoughts, Becky. Well, Becky, you are in a great position to be honored in that way, to be contacted by your alma mater and asked to come back and teach there. And now it's a position that you say you love collecting information, organizing, relating to students. Boy, I say take this deal in a heartbeat. I mean, go. And yes, I mean, even... With what you're talking about to get your master's, this is not an unusual arrangement, and and it probably doesn't restrict you as much as you might think. So if you do love the idea of teaching at Laterno, which you say you do, 
you may decide that you want to stay after the three years. And even if you get married and have children, I mean, that may be the perfect kind of position where you teach a couple classes or maybe you're gone, you know, two mornings a week. You can do most of the rest of the work, the study, the prep, the scoring test and everything from home, but still have the satisfaction, prestige and income of a university position. I mean, that sounds like a really good option, no matter what your future may hold in the next five years. And if you decide to leave completely, they'll simply prorate the following two years. You know, so if you stay for one additional year, but not two, you'd have to pay half the amount in question. You know, I just think there's very little downside in this. I'd say take this deal in a heartbeat, have fun. Five years will go by in a heartbeat. And uh, if other things happen in your life along the way, fantastic. You know, we never wait till our life is perfect to get married or have children, those big events that we have in our lives. We work those things in around work that is meaningful anyway. I mean, these are all components of a successful life. Work is not the only thing or even the major most important thing. Well, this question comes from Anonymous because family is listening. He or she says, somewhere in USA didn't even identify a city. That's funny. This person This anonymous person says, I want to get my family, brothers, sisters, spouses, and parents a study we can all do together as a Christmas gift. I've read 48 Days and No More Mondays. Would love to study this material with them. What program would you recommend we use? The more Bible-based, the better. What about the materials you used in your church? Well, those materials I used in my church years ago have been molded into what is now 48 Days to the Work You Love. What you're talking about, to have a workbook that you go through, again, you could use just the text, 48 Days to the Work You Love. There's enough fill-in-the-blanks and questions at the end. You can just use that. And a lot of people, organizations, universities, yesterday I did a class for the oh, which one, the state of Missis- Mississippi State University. I think that's what it was, Mississippi State University. And the entire class, about 50 students, were required to read 48 Days to the Work You Love, and then we had a discussion yesterday. I did a presentation, then took questions from the class. Um, so you can use just that and certainly create your own study. Also, we do have, we have a big, big supply of the 48 Days workbooks right now. Those workbooks come with an audio CD. They sold originally for $29.95. They were part of the package that was created specifically for Costco. And we bought thousands and thousands of those back after the Costco promotion was over, which is typically the way they do it. So we purchased all the excess back from my publisher, but we have sold a whole lot of the workbooks out of those kits. I mean, a lot of the textbooks, a lot of the hardbacks out of those kits. So we have a lot of workbooks left. We're going to do something with those. Just uh, stay tuned. Watch for upcoming promotions. We're going to do something with those prior to Christmas, where we clear that out of our inventory because we've got some new products coming out and I don't want those singular workbooks standalone in our inventory. So we're going to do something to allow people to get those at ridiculously low prices. So just uh, stay tuned on that. That may be something that would be useful for you as well. Well, hello, Dan. This comes from Wendy. Now, this is this is one I alluded to in the opening, an interesting kind of position. Listen to this. We want to talk about this a little. 
Wendy says, Dan, I'm getting ready to travel back to Cleveland for a funeral for my uncle. He was 51 and had no life insurance. His brothers and sisters are diligently working to figure out how to pay for his funeral with limited funds. I listen to you and my bishop and Joel and Joyce and Dave and all of you give me hope that my life of living paycheck to paycheck is not really normal, but having multiple streams of income and living life abundantly is what God has for me. Now, listen to this. However, my family's constant negativity that because I'm black, I will always struggle is beginning to sink in. I have fought them all my life, but lately I've been feeling myself accept those words and live based on it. What do you do to fight those negative voices, especially when it's your mother and father and family? How do you continue to fight for a living life, uh, paying my own health insurance rather than depending on a job? and so on and so forth. Well, Wendy, I mean, this, it's, it's really surprising sometimes when I hear the things from people that they consider to be obstacles. I mean, every day, you know, we get letters from people that say, I'm 27 years old, and I think I majored in the wrong thing in college. I don't want to do that anymore. So the implication is, I'm 27, I made that initial mistake, and so now I'm just going to kind of coast into the grave. Well, what a travesty that would be to have that kind of outlook that young in life. But we hear from people who think they're, they don't have the right degree, they don't have any degree, they're too tall, too short, um, too smart, too dumb, I mean, too Polish, too African, uh, hair is too red. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Now, I'm not going to diminish at all what you're talking about here, but to accept the idea that because you are black, you will always struggle is a horrible position. And I certainly am going to encourage you to block that out of your thinking totally. Just don't accept that. I mean, have you heard of a guy named Barack Obama? I mean, I, I hope that he helped break the stigma once and for all that a black person can't get ahead in America. Well, of course you can. But I know when you're raised in an environment like that, and when you have people who are around you, this is like, boy, I tell a story that has little to do with color, but it's about the, the black crabs that people collect on the seashore. And you put them in a bucket and, uh, you know, walking down and you know that you're preparing for dinner that night and all of a sudden those crabs kind of get an idea that this is not going to have a good ending. And so they think, I better get out of here. So one of them reaches up, gets the one leg over the edge of the bucket, starts to pull himself out. And you know what happens as soon as he does, somebody below grabs a leg and pulls him back down in. I mean, there's that we have those kind of people around us, unfortunately. All of us have those. I mean, I was raised Mennonite. I was raised in an environment don't expect much. In fact, it was not just don't expect much. It's having much really is a dangerous spiritual position to be in. I mean, I think they misread the part that money is the root of all evil. They just flat thought having money puts you in a dangerous position. You're better off without any. It's better to be poor and godly than risk being rich and moving away from being godly. I mean, we're dirt, ashes to ashes. I mean, I had to break every stereotype to get out of the mentality. Now, one of the things that helped me dramatically was the audio recording, The Strangest Secret. And Wendy, I already pulled up your address. One of the cool things about having people who subscribe to newsletters and purchase products is I can have incident access to your not only your email address, but your physical address. I'm going to send you a copy of The Strangest Secret. 
the beautiful gift book that's been done by Simple Truths. It's a beautiful four-color gift book, and in the back is the audio recording on The Strangest Secret, where the principle is essentially we become what we think about. So you can break those stereotypes. You can break the messages you're hearing from your family if you replace those by making sure that you're listening to a lot of information that goes counter to that information that's going to remind you of the things that you can do of the potential that you have ahead of you. Well, here's another story. And again, this is pretty significant. This, this may sound like a small success story, but it's, it's really significant. This comes from Scott. Scott says a little over a year ago, I wrote to you about my passion for creating software and lamenting that it seemed like with the movement of a lot of this left brain work offshore, there seemed to be little opportunity. Now, what Scott's talking about there, when we talk about left brain work, we're talking about the kind of work that requires detail, analysis, logic, systems, operations, methods. I mean, that's all left brain work. And I've talked about the explosion of opportunities for right brain skills, where people who are more interested in things that are artistic, uh, storytellers, dreamers, thinkers, where they do have more opportunity. And yes, it is true that a lot of the work that we would associate with left brain skills has been taken offshore. Certainly not all of it, there are opportunities for all of us, but that is a trend. Scott continues, also, uh, as I had been and still am in a job that didn't allow me to exercise that passion, I was afraid I was too rested to get back into it. You had advised me to at least try it out. I believe your suggestion was a garden calendar app, so I did. I had wanted to have an iPhone but was choking on the monthly fee, so I decided to see if I could write an iPhone that would sell enough copies on a monthly basis to fund my phone. In December of last year, I put my first app in the iTunes App Store, and as of last week, it sold just over 1,500 copies. The app is a music dictionary, music tools, and it sells two to three copies a day, which at $2.99 is enough volume to pay for my phone. I've even had a request to have it translated into Spanish. If I promoted it more actively, I'm sure it would do better. But the point is that this small deposit of success revived me. It broke through the negative crust that had formed after years of doing things that don't fit me. It has inspired me to tackle another software idea I've had for over 10 years that will help musicians, and that leads to my question. The new app requires a custom Bluetooth accessory for iPad. I have created a product specification and had it reviewed by an Apple-approved accessory manufacturer in China, and they've come back with an estimate on the cost of the design work, certification with Apple, etc., including expected production unit cost. The ball is now in my court, but having zero experience in having a product manufactured, especially offshore, I'm not sure how to proceed. Do I need to set up an LLC or some other form of protection? Do I need specialized legal counsel? What sort of financial gotchas are hidden in the woodwork? In other words, how do I navigate these uncharted waters? I realize I must be sure there is a market for the product, but if we assume for discussion's sake that there is, what's the right approach? Well, Scott, you packed a lot in there, but first off, I want to congratulate you on doing what you've done. To move ahead and actually create an app and to have two or three selling a day at three bucks a piece and have already sold 1500 that's awesome. 
That's awesome, and I'm delighted the way you describe it. It broke through the negative crust that had formed after years of doing things that don't fit me. You know, a lot of people fall into that category where, you know, there there is something that takes place if you spend years doing work that doesn't fit you, where you become more immune, you miss what the opportunities really are. You know, to, to recognize opportunities, you have to stay in the game. You have to be looking for them every day. You can't take five years off and then think a great idea is going to hit you. It usually doesn't work that way. Now, as to your questions, these are complicated things. I would encourage you to pose the questions you have here on 48days.net. These are all questions where we have experts who are more experienced than I in how to do these. I mean, we have people who have connections for offshore manufacturing, how you can get something done in China and cover all your bases so that you know you're not only legal, but that you're going to get the product that you want. I would encourage you just to jump on 48days.net and pose your questions there. I could go through kind of a cursory overview. I don't think at this point that you do need to set up an LLC or some kind of formal legal organization, what you need to do is just go ahead and get the app developed. If at some point down the road you decide you want to form a legal entity, you can do that. But don't don't make it complicated. Just move ahead with the product, but make sure you've got all your bases covered there for getting it manufactured, getting it set up, getting everything done right. Lynn says, I was amused by the 37-year-old who thought Some options are closed because of his age. And she goes on, Clara Cananucci, I think it is, is a great grandmother of 94 who became a YouTube celebrity in the last two years as the host of her own cooking show. Well, we've gotten lots of stories about people who found success later in life. And certainly at 37 years old, there are no doors closed I mean, we hear stories about people like Colonel Harlan Sanders, who at 65 got his first Social Security check for $203 for the month. And he thought, well, I can either learn to live on this or I can do something beyond what this is going to allow me to do. Now, he had had a restaurant, but it wasn't doing well because the freeways came by his little town in Kentucky and kind of put him out of business. But he had this recipe that people had responded well to, and he thought there may be some value there. Put together his recipe, and what he did was propose to restaurants that they would pay him five cents per chicken that they, when they used his recipe, not per meal. You may get four meals out of a chicken or whatever, but per chicken, five cents a piece. He went to over a thousand restaurants before he had one say yes. Now that's a lesson in persistence for sure, but he was already over 65 years old when he did that was absolutely broke at the time. And of course, as we say, the rest is history. We know what happened as a result of that as he moved into phenomenal success after that. Now, one of the things, and we were talking about this this morning in my Wednesday morning guys group, talking again about the power of study, preparation, practice. I mean, we've got a couple guys in the group who are in the music industry and they're notorious for having young kids come in and they watch somebody like a Phil Keggy play the guitar, which he's been doing for 40 years probably. And they, they want to do that next week. You know, they don't want to put in the time and practice and years of study. They want to do it next week. Well, these are things where sometimes it's easy to think, 
well, God just gave a person a special gift. I mean, we hear that all the time. This last week, I sang with the Nashville Choir, which I enjoy being a part of. We sang at a benefit concert at one of the big churches here, and it was a benefit for the Salvation Army Angel Tree Program. So they had other guest artists in there, people like Restless Heart and Jimmy Wayne and others. And again, I saw how easy it is for people to idolize and adore people who have had some success in the music industry here in Nashville. It's pretty common. And I think, well, that person has a special gift. That person just was, you know, touched by God. Well, then you hear the stories about these people, the years they put in practicing to get to where they are. I mean, one of the books that I've mentioned on here in the past is Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. And in there, he talks about the 10,000 hour rule. We don't see people, if it's Michael Jordan or, or Michael Jackson or who it happens to be, you know, who excel in a particular area who have not put in at least 10,000 hours. Now, you do the math on that, that's kind of full time for five years or a double time for two and a half, whatever you want to make it, or part time for 10. But most people are going to put in a whole lot of time before they really have polished the genius or the gift or the talent that God gave them. Pablo Casals was a very well-known, respected, revered cello player. I read just recently that when he was 13 years old, he discovered at a bookstore some old music that had six cello suites in them by Bach. At 13 years old, he practiced eight hours a day playing all six of those cello suites for the next 13 years before he ever did a public performance. Now, again, that, I mean, we look at that in our instant society, we think, well, I don't want to do that. You know, I just want to be good instantly. No, Pablo Casals, at 13, he spent the next 13 years practicing those at least eight hours a day before he ever did a public performance of those works. Now, he continued, obviously, and was seen immediately as, as being a a gifted genius. You know, God somehow really gave him a special gift. And we undermine what's required. Now, there's a couple things that happen when somebody ascribes a person's talent as a special gift. What it does, it immediately implies that if I claimed a gift of my own rather than being something God touched me with, it would be egotistical. So there's that factor. The other thing is it relieves me of the responsibility of ever having to be great at doing something because obviously I'm not a master of anything. I'm not great at anything. So I can just continue in my humdrum life, but it's not my fault because I didn't get that gift. Well, this is where we have to unpack, you know, what does it mean to be gifted? It usually means we have the seed of something. And if we take the initiative and work on that, we can develop it into something useful. The seed of a gift alone will never amount to anything. So when you see great musicians, you know, talk to them about the years of preparation that they spent. When Pablo Casals was 93 years old, and I actually saw him play when he was 93 years old in his hometown of San Juan, Puerto Rico, but had that privilege. But somebody asked him at about that period in his life, 93 years old, why he was still practicing three hours a day just practicing three hours a day. And Pablo Casal says, because I think I'm starting to see a little improvement. Well, a great, great perspective 
where he never thought that he was so good that he had to, that he could just stop practicing. No, it continues practicing. But if you have a gift, if you want to be great, if you want to have the genius of God, take a seed of a talent that you have and then develop it. Do something great. It's never too late, incidentally. I mean, this is started here by, we had a note from a 37-year-old who thought he was too old to ever be great. And that's not uncommon. And believe me, I get those notes from people who are in their 20s every day who think, well, I, I made a wrong decision somewhere in the past, so now I'm too old to ever correct it. Well, that's not true. I mean, this is a, a process of continued learning, a continued refinement of continued, I mean, the process of knowing your calling and living out your purpose, your destiny, however you frame it, is an ongoing process. It's not something you do once and then forget about it. You could, I, I mean, I, well, let me just talk about me. I could never have envisioned what I'm doing today when I was 25 years old. I mean, the technology wouldn't have even allowed it. It wasn't possible to do today if I would have thought about it when I was 25 years old. So am I disappointed that I didn't figure out my life's path at 25? Not at all. I did a whole lot of things, had a lot of fun. I always have seen work as just one component of a successful life, not as the critical thing that defines my worth and who I am. It's just one thing that I do. But it's exciting to be able to see new opportunities there to continue living out what I think is a larger sense of purpose or direction in my life, as all of you should have. And that's why Stephen Covey talks about the power of a personal mission statement. That acts as a compass even as other things in your life change, which they certainly will when it comes to a, a daily application of work. I mean, that's going to come and go. That's going to change. So don't get locked into doing one thing. Recognize this is a continuing process of refining, but you get better and better at what you do because you continue studying and practicing. I mean, I have certainly had some success as a life coach. Well, I continue reading everything I can get my hands on about coaching. I've had some success at speaking. Uh, this last month, I went to two different conferences for speakers to learn how to do that better, how to deliver better. I mean, and I, and I have great notes from those that I'm implementing immediately in what I do. Never want to stop learning, and I'm sure that you do not as well. Let me just grab one more here. Dan, I got promoted to a new position with the company I work at. Unfortunately, the pay stays the same until after 90 days. I can't pay off my debts with this income, so we'll continue my job search. Should I use a functional or chronological resume in the future? I have lots of experience in many different fields. Thanks, John. Well, John, this may be require a broader solution than what you're presenting here. When you have a lot of debt that you want to repay... It may be best to look at how can you create multiple streams of income? How can you have a core career that may pay you, I don't know what it is, it may be, let's say, $40,000. So you have that, and that's not enough to live and repay debt, so you need another $2,000 a month. Well, rather than holding out for a job, I mean, I don't know what your skills are. Your skills may not position you to just increase your pay. Just because you have financial needs is no reason, no justification for expecting higher pay. If you're being paid what is reasonable for the skills that you bring to the table, then so be it. That's where you're going to stay. So your challenge then is how can you create income in addition to 
the traditional or real job that you have. I would encourage you to look for things like that rather than just thinking, okay, you just had a job change and now you're going to hope for another job change in 30 days. It bumps you up a little bit, but that's not enough. So you're still looking, always looking for that one job that's going to take care of all your financial needs. It may not work that way. There are a whole lot of people today that have a core career and that may be as a school teacher or as a pastor, but then they're looking for other ways to leverage intellectual property they have or do something on eBay, become an expert there at selling old books or baseball cards or China, you know, something. But look for other ways that you can make up the margin where you can increase your income. And that's a very legitimate way to approach it. Well, I'm going to wrap with that. Again, just reminding you of some of the events that we've got coming up here. We'd love to have you join us. If you aren't on 48days.net, you know, one of the things that we, we had a, a call yesterday with the advisory team for 48days.net, and we're getting about 4,000 new people a week who are coming and looking at 48days.net. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, we're not in a race to get 50,000 people on there. I really don't care. I mean, we have a core group of people who are active, who are sharing ideas and getting advice from other people. But it, it intrigues me. It makes me scratch my head. Why would somebody come there, see the value of the resources there and not get involved? There's no cost. There's no commitment. We aren't going to come knock on your door. It's just a sharing community. Now, I recognize, you know, there's a lot of good sharing communities out there, and you don't want to be involved in 10 of them because it'll just suck up your time. So if you've got something else, another community where you're getting the same kind of resources, fantastic. And if you are, I'd love to know about it. But to have people come in there and then don't get involved, who just kind of hit and miss their I really don't understand that. If there's a resource that is readily available right at your fingertips, you can ask questions there, get the wisdom. I mean, it's like having a brain trust right there at your disposal. Um, Again, again, no pressure. You don't have to do that, but it seems to be a reasonable way to get involved in the community that you could benefit from and develop your own ideas. We also have the live events coming up. Don't forget to check out the No More Mondays cruise. It's going to be the highlight of next year with people where we can share time together, uh, go on tours together, but also learn and apply the principles that are going to give us the best year ever. So, again, this is your friend Dan Meller. I've been your host here for this. Delighted to have you as part of our community. And I know that you, like many, are working to not only find, but perhaps create the work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week, as always.